Welcome to Rising Up with me, Yasmin Khan, a podcast about cultivating resilience in a world that feels like it's imploding. Today's guest is Fiona Buckland, a life coach who's one of my favourite sources of wisdom and someone I feel very lucky to say is a close friend. Fiona is one of a small handful of people who I absolutely would trust with the biggest, naughtiest aspects of my life. And she's the go-to expert on navigating life transitions and mastering your inner critic. Her first book, The Thoughtful Leader, was all about cultivating authentic leadership. And I sat down with her to talk about her latest book, Find Your Own Path, A Life Coach's Guide to Changing Your Life, a book that I was lucky enough to have an early copy of and absolutely resonated with me as I find myself on this threshold, which I think many people do coming out of the pandemic, of wondering what exactly is important to me and how do I want to sculpt my life accordingly? The conversation was just mind-blowing. We discussed how to pivot our lives when they don't feel right anymore, what happens when our core values change, and how we cultivate resilience in the face of rolling challenges. There are some book recommendations and references dotted throughout, and you can find the links to all of those, along with a very special recipe, over at my Substack, which is risingup.substack.com. I really got a lot from the conversation. I hope you do too. Hello, Fiona. Welcome to Rising Up. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on the show at this very exciting time when you have a new book out. Thank you so much for reading the book. You're actually the first person to do it. Really good, Fiona. Thank you. I'm actually going to work through it. That's really nice. And it's it's nice because we've been tracking each other's journeys as well. Yeah. (laughs) And had so many conversations over the time. Got still very fond memories before lockdown of of coming over to your place for recipe test night. I was writing my previous book and it was such a nice break to go to Yasmin's recipe test night. I remember you were a fan of the hot yogurt and spinach soup. Oh man, I love that so much. It was, I mean... When you brought it up, it was yogurt soup. <laughs> Two words that in English don't really go together. And it was a revelation. Whenever I make it for people now, they're like, yogurt <laughs> And then they try it and they're looking at me going, okay, it's really, really nice. That makes my heart feel so happy. <laughs> makes me feel hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yes. So Fiona, you are a life coach, um, which is a very broad term, I think. So for people who don't know what that is, how would you describe the work that you do? Sure. So I suppose the job title is that I'm a coach, a facilitator and a speaker and author. But what I've realized is that even if I wasn't a coach and facilitator, if I was an engineer, if I worked in a shop, the way that I am I would still be delivering my purpose, which is fundamentally to connect people to their deeper selves so that they can take action in the world in a way that's really authentic and meaningful to them. Well, that is certainly how I have known you in my life. I think you're somebody who I wanted to speak to for this podcast because you have a really unique ability in being able to help people delve deeper into the nuance of whatever experience it is that they are experiencing. And I say, I phrase it in that way because sometimes, you know, I remember I'd say to you, you know, I've got this challenge going on or I've got that challenge going on. And I talked to you about what I felt was like 
well, what I've now understood is like perhaps a surface issue. And you would just very casually in a conversation over a cup of tea, just ask this question that would suddenly have me looking at whatever issue I was, I was struggling with in a whole new meaning. And I think that's a real gift, actually. And it's brought you to your second book that has just been published, which is called Find Your Own Path. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So, you know, as you hit midlife, (laughs) all of the things you kind of think you know, or that keep you safe and successful become a bit more uh, questionable. Not wrong, but you do have to look at them because something, some things aren't working. And so in a way, on a personal level, I had got to the point a few years ago when I needed to find my own path. You know, even though my life looked fine from the outside, on the inside, something wasn't working. I was having panic attacks. I was struggling. I really was lost. I was quite lost. On a professional level, now as a coach, people can come and they say, oh, I want a new job or a new relationship or I'm feeling a bit empty. But what I've realized in talking to people, it's like they have a moment of revelation where they realize that actually what they're asking for is not the new job or the new partner or the promotion or the leadership ability. What they're actually seeking is meaning. And there might be many reasons for this. It could be that you're just naturally maturing. It could be that the old life you had, you get thrown out of for whatever reason, divorce, redundancy, illness, pandemic global, economic, social upheaval. But whatever the reason is, you get to a point when you're ready to find your own path again, and it will be a new one. You need to sort of um, recheck your compass and draw your map new because what you want and how you're going to live the next part of your life might be very different from what you've been doing so far. Intellectually, And spiritually, the inspiration really came from this lovely line by Richard Rohr, who wrote this book called Falling Upwards. I don't know if you know it. It's wonderful. I'd recommend it. And it's a book about midlife. And not everyone who's going to be listening to this is in midlife. But I also, you know, midlife is not just about being in your 40s or 50s. You can hit that moment in any point of your life when you realize that you actually, rather than reacting to life events, you want to put your own hands on the wheel. And and Richard Rohr wrote this. In the first part of your life, you're reading the script, and in the second, you're writing it. And what I'm trying to do fundamentally is to help people write that. That's what Find Your Own Path is about. You talk in the book about there being this concept of two adulthoods, which I found fascinating. Tell us what that is. Sure. So this is a concept, but also it's empirically verifiable for listeners who, you know, like the meat of it. But the influences from that are from developmental psychologists such as Piaget, but also from people like Bill Plotkin, who map the journey of life being of several stages. So in childhood, when you're a kid and you're just about figuring out, oh, I am, I have an ego and no, I don't want broccoli, to older childhood being more of learning a bit more about the world and what you can do in it and your effect on it. And then into adolescence as well, which is very much about socialization and separating from your parents and becoming more peer-based. But then you hit first adulthood. And first adulthood is really that time when we learn to be successful in the world. You know, it's about taking a bit of responsibility for yourself. So you know, there's this phrase called adulting, 
which is about, you know, paying your bills, you know, earning some money, washing your own clothes, you know, taking care of yourself, figuring out how you can be successful in the world. But then there is a second adulthood. So when you've achieved all of the tasks within that developmental stage, you pass on to a second stage of adulthood, which is really the search for meaning. What can I get really good at? What is the impact that I can have on the world? What is the contribution that I can make to the world? How do I become most fully myself in a way that is meaningful? You know, bringing my whole self in. I also want to add on to that, that it doesn't stop. It continues. You go then into early elderhood, which is about community, giving back and legacy. And finally, into late elderhood, which is then all about preparing for death, the final legacy pieces, what you're leaving behind. So so this journey continues. So I sort of say to people that quite a lot of the discomfort that sometimes people can feel, you know, that feeling of, um, I just don't love my life anymore. I just don't, you know, I feel a bit dead and empty inside. It doesn't mean that anything is wrong. It feels like something's wrong, but it isn't. It's a sign that you're at the edge of that second adulthood, you know, and all of those things about paying your bills on time, you know, aren't going to help you with this piece. You know, you've mastered them and now you're ready to hear the call for the second piece. I found that just so reassuring when I read it. It was almost like this light bulb kind of went off in my head and I was like, oh, maybe that's what's happening because I have a bit of a confession to make. I had an ulterior motive also for wanting to have you on because I feel that, you know, especially having read your book, it suddenly put all of these pieces together in my head and it made me think, oh, I think I'm going through a transition. I think this substat, this podcast is all part of that, but it's actually about something deeper. And I think what was really useful about that framing is it doesn't necessarily mean that you're failing at stuff. It just could mean that you've outgrown perhaps a set of circumstances or some other factors in your life. You know, I've definitely gone through um, transitions when I've had a major crisis as well. I think that that is one I think that most people perhaps think of, you know, a bereavement, a job loss uh, or something like that. But also that kind of quiet, when I say quiet, it starts off quiet and then it gets louder if and louder. If you don't pay attention to it, it's going it's gonna, to it's gonna set your house on fire if you don't listen to it. Yeah. yeah, but just that voice kind of saying, oh, oh, oh. Is this it? Is this, oh, really? Gosh, I don't think I like this. Mm. Oh, but you shouldn't moan. There isn't really anything to complain about, really. Mm. And I think that the pandemic perhaps was a bit of an incubator for that in people, wasn't it? Yeah. And thank you for saying that and really being honest about your experience, because I think that that's really relatable because people do worry that there's something wrong with them or something wrong with their lives. And what we tend to do sometimes is we, and I'm not saying that you did this, but we can blame. Well, it's my job, it's my boss, or there's something wrong with me or my partner. And that, because we don't recognize the call for what it is, you know, which is coming from something deeper, as you said, something something deeper. And I also think that whether the, there was a pandemic or not, you know, this is going to, this is going to happen naturally. So if someone's listening and they feel that perhaps they might be in some kind of transition or you call it actually a threshold, mm. what are the signs? 
<laughs> it's really important to say that there's no one sign. Like there's there's not an illumination that arrives and goes, you are at the threshold. <laughs> so I really ask people to tune into themselves. There are lots of ways that this can show up and you might not even notice it. You might call it something else and that's slightly the danger. So you know that the Sunday night feeling of dreading going back to work. Now, whether you love your job, sometimes we can all have a Sunday night like that. The things that used to excite you, that you used to feel really energized by, not just work, but friends, things you do with your time, just start to feel a bit flat and you can't seem to revive it. You feel a bit de-energized. You might also notice signs of distress as well. And I want to be very careful when I say this as well. There can be anxiety and depression. Although I do want to say to people, if they're listening to this, that if this becomes chronic with you, yes, explore that it might be a sign that actually you want to change some things. But if it is chronic, then do go and talk to a professional about it as well. Um, I've done that in the past and I would definitely ask other people to do it. People might also notice what I sort of noticed in myself, which is a need to turn the music up, <laughs> to try and distract yourself away from the pain of inauthenticity, which is what you're feeling, because the life that you've had, as you put it really well, you've outgrown in some way. But the temptation is always like, if it's painful and distressing, or just feels a bit empty, the danger is then is that we start to fill it. We doom scroll, we get into arguments online, we drink, we party, we work we seek out distractions in some way and it's totally understandable. We numb. We basically. numb. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We numb, we anesthetize, um, or we go into a frantic state of trying to find something outside of yourself, some external source that will return to you or give you a feeling that you once had. And it can be, well, I just need to find a new fitness regime or get a new job or a new partner. The, the issue is that there's nothing external that's going to give you that unless you've gone inward and done the inner work so that you understand who you are now, what aligns with who you are now, your values, your sense of purpose. It's a call. It's a natural call that you may well receive. And I also want to say some people will be pushed into it because of, you know, bereavement or loss. Or it can, of course, be because of discrimination and prejudice. That also can happen. But what's really important to remember is that whatever's going on, although you might not have had a choice in what's happened, you do now have a choice in how to respond. I think that for me, one of the aspects of these transition periods that is so challenging is, as you've described, the inner work is very hard. And for me, I've found that it's <laughs> it's often involved like a huge identity shift, mm. which, you know, has been quite challenging. So I went through one of these things around 10 years ago, maybe a bit more now, 12 years ago, up until that point, been kind of a full-time activist working for NGOs, an external thing, or well, maybe it's an internal thing. It was my health that completely collapsed. I was forced to take time off. I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue. I couldn't work for the best part of 18 months. Ugh. But during that process, what was interesting, <laughs> you can use that word now once you're not in it, was just that I had to completely reevaluate who I was 
And what had been super important in my values suddenly didn't feel as important. And I really enjoyed the section in the book where you talk about values and, you know, as you're starting this journey of trying to work out, okay, something's not right. Where do I begin? I want to find meaning. Okay, let's, let's start with values. But what's interesting is, is that values can change, can't they, over time? Yeah. And what motivated you, and I think this is where I'm at now. Sorry, everyone's getting insight what's going on for me. But I think what I'm finding really interesting at the moment is that the values that perhaps dominated the last 10 years aren't necessarily ones I want to dominate the next 10. So mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit more about values and how we might explore them? Yeah. I, I, and, and thank you for telling the story. You know, I've heard you say it before, but you know, the, the profundity of having that identity, cause, cause it, it, it was a grief. It's I have a grief. To say. Yeah. It was a grief. It's, I was heartbroken. It's a grief. If I wasn't an activist, who was I? Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is, is that that goes sometimes before the new thing arises and the old thing it, it wouldn't just have been about your work. It would have been about the people that you spent time with and what you did when you got home and the things that you did at the weekend. And it, it was everything. It was your way of looking at the world, your way of being in the world. So who are you when that goes? Um, values are really important. You're so right. They do change. And very often what causes the discomfort, the threshold is that we're living our lives according to the values of an out-of-date version of ourselves. But a value is not like a, an interest. You know, if I'd met you then, you would have said, oh, well, I'm interested in social justice. My question would have been, well, what's important about social justice for you? And you start to get more deeply into those values. When I work with, with clients and in the book, I give people an exercise to help them dig a little deeper into what lights them up or what's really important to them. So that then you start to get this idea of this fundamental guide or blueprint to what matters to you. And of course, you can have strengths, but they might not be things that make you want to get out of bed in the morning with a spring in your step. So I always say to people, be careful not to align your life with your strengths, which is what quite a lot of people do. Yeah. So put my own skin in the game. My values are Growth. I love growth. It's got learning and creativity in there. Love it. Got to grow. Don't like status quo. Uh, service. How can I be useful in the world? And love. You know, and whenever I get an opportunity to do something, you know, I ask myself, is this in alignment with my values of, of growth, service and love? If, if it is, great. If it isn't, might not be for me. So it gives me a, a compass. And that's really helpful because as you mentioned in the transition, it's choppy waters that you're going into. It's the unknown. You stand on the threshold and you can't see it. It's foggy and it's boggy and it's full of dead ends sometimes. But one of my favorite sayings, I think it's an Arabic saying, says, trust in God, but tie your camel. (laughs) And I think having a compass, a values compass that helps you, that you can check in with, really helps you to do the the camel tying piece as well. You know, what is the action that I can take? And talking of action, what's really important once you've got those values is to say, okay, what can I do, you know, this week to put those values into action, even if in a small way? That energizes you 
that starts to pull you through as well, even if you're not entirely clear of what your path might be. And there you start laying the groundwork for it, which is really important. And they do change. You know, second adulthood change. You become a parent, they change. You partner up, they change. We're living in a world now where I think a lot of the values of the world are starting to shift, hopefully, from one in which, you know, consumption is important to thinking systemically. How can I do what I do in a way that is sustainable, does no harm, and could be for the benefit of future generations? So you mentioned choppy waters, and I think that is a great way to describe it because it can feel quite exhausting, can't it, navigating all of this internally. And one of the things I think this book does really well is as well as guiding you through some of the more theoretical aspects of this journey to find your own path, it's also filled with really practical exercises. The one I want to just dig into a little bit is about replenishing your well. And there was this subtitle that really made me laugh that was like, why are we all so exhausted all the time? And I think I just like exhaled when I read that. And I was like, oh, yeah, we really are. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yeah. When we're in choppy waters, when we're going through the transition, the quality of our life is affected by the level of energy that we can bring. And in some ways, it's the secret source because changes in energy state change mindset, change approach, change your sense of self-efficacy, your belief that you can do it. So it's it's not just about getting out of bed in the morning or running 10 miles. What's really important though, is to understand that there are wells that need replenishing. I think that because of the way we live our lives, we've got very caught into a stress and recovery pattern. I put in the book and I say to clients, let's check and say, you know, what do you think of when you think of a weekend or a holiday? And I've asked this to hundreds of people and they all go, oh God, recovery, recovery. And my question is, of course, there are times when we want to recover and rest. And I'm a really big fan of that. But why don't we move to more of a replenishment model, noticing what's running down, understanding what drains it as well, and knowing how we can replenish those wells. Yeah, I found that part of the book really fascinating, where you describe the kind of eight types of energy that are out there, you know, physical, cognitive, intellectual, creative, social, spiritual, sexual, and emotional. And I really found the exercise at the end of that chapter helpful where you kind of sit down and map, okay, which of the energies and how I relate to them kind of fill my well and which of them deplete me. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And it's helpful to look at that because it enables us to really think about the full level of where our energy comes from. You know, it's not from sleep. It's not from food. It's something else because it's, if you're emotionally exhausted, then guess what? A Mars bar ain't going to (laughs) help. Sorry. (laughs) Much as I love them, or even better, my lint chocolate bunnies, that's not really going to help. You know, we think of energy as being something that we can consume to replace. And it's not like that. It's not always like that. (laughs) 
So self-compassion is an area that I know you're very interested in, and there's a chapter on it in the book. Um, It's quite an important thing to master, isn't it? Especially when you're going through these transitions, when you're on some kind of threshold. There's a really interesting moment that I hit sometimes with some of my clients, especially the sort of executive CEO, striving, driven people who say, I can't be self-compassionate to myself. That's kind of weak. That's letting myself off the hook. I turn into a bit of a slob and I'd never get anything done. And I think that there's a misunderstanding of what self-compassion is. Self-compassion is the action, if you like, of self-acceptance. That doesn't mean that we don't want to change things. But from the Buddhist perspective, you know, and, and a lot of this is drawn from the Buddhist perspective, there's two aspects to self-compassion and self-acceptance. One is to feel your own humanity. You're a human being doing your best. You're not perfect. The second is to understand that you share this humanity with other people. You're not perfect and neither is anybody else. One of the things that we do a lot of is we're much kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. We flagellate ourselves quite a lot with our inner critics and our stories of of what's wrong with us. And self-compassion takes that edge off. And there's been quite a lot of research now through neuroimaging that shows that people who practice self-compassion, and there are various ways to do it. My favorite exercise is the self-compassion letter which I want to honour people like Paul Gilbert and Kristen Neff. I love Kristen Neff's work. I also want to chuck in her free meditations have been a lifesaver for me. She's wonderful and Mm. so generous, so generous. And as is Tara Brach, who's another one I know that you all really love as well. Um, Self-compassion research now shows that it not only improves your well-being, but it helps you be more creative and more focused, more able to connect more able to think through issues, more able to see positive outcomes and take action towards them. So it's not really a soft skill. (laughs) You know, when I'm sitting there with those execs, I actually have to angle it and say, actually, it also will improve your performance if that's what you're interested in as well. Not just about being kind to yourself. Compassion is opening up a little bit more space. And when you do that, through being able to give yourself a bit more space and a bit more peace and kindness and be able to do that for other people, guess what? You bring down your own level of stress and other people's as well. And when you do that, you you can connect more deeply. There are so many benefits. I think that's a really fascinating way to look at it. And I can certainly see how actually self-compassion doesn't just have an impact on you, but definitely all your relationships. I just think of kind of relationships I've had with people in different contexts, whether it's work or friendship or intimate, where actually our ability to relate had a lot to do with how much either of us at that time were able to be compassionate towards ourselves. Because One thing that does happen, I think, if you don't have a lot of compassion for yourself, sometimes it can almost be that you think that a lot of other people are criticizing you because your inner critic is so heightened. Yes. And and your brain will scan for signs of that. It's like your fears are being spoken out of somebody else's mouth. And because of the way our brains work, it seeks confirmation of that because our brains are tuned to threat. 
it will imagine threat. So in the kind of world that we're living in now, where cooperation is essential, especially because of the big issues that we've got, being able to work together, see the best for each other, and be able to hear the best from each other really does help people. Not just, as you said, not just on a personal level, but on an intrapersonal and, and more global level as well. So one of the things I'm doing with this podcast and Substack is trying to explore themes around resilience, not just individually, but also collectively. Because in so many conversations with friends over the last few years, it felt like we kept coming back to this topic, whether it was personal or whether it was political. So I was really interested to see that you had a chapter on that in the book. You know, we've talked about how these transitions can take a lot of energy. Um, so it also involves cultivating a bit of resilience, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It does. It was so important to me to put that in because you know what? And let's get into this. I have a bit of a problem with the memification of, if you like, the life journey. If you can dream it, you can be it. Sure you can, but you know what? It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of persistence and life isn't fair sometimes. It's less fair for some people than others as well. Your resilience can also be affected by, you know, how you grew up, even, you know, your mother's anxiety when you were in the womb. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really useful part of the book because not everybody intrinsically has the same levels of resilience, do they? No, there's no ideal stiff upper lip. I can take on anything and nothing touches me. That's not resilience. One of my teachers, Chris Johnstone, he, he uses this metaphor. He says, imagine that, that you're on a ship and you're sailing along and it hit rocks. What would you do? You curse the rocks for being there. You curse the ship or the, the crewmates or you, you curse your own uh, navigation. But how about if you could raise the waterline a bit? That's what resilience is, the ability to raise the waterline a little bit, to help you navigate those rocks a bit more clearly, cleanly, leave a little bit more space, but also to be able to recover. Because I didn't want to write a book that made it sound like all you have to do is to follow a plan and everything will be great. No, it's it's hard. And as we're seeing globally now, it's it's not even as if the crises are lining up in a nice orderly fashion and giving us breathing space in between them before the next one comes. There's a, you know, and this affects us, you know, it affects us personally. You know, we are in the world and the world is in us. And what are some of the things that people can do to kind of build their resilience or to cultivate it? This is what I would ask you or anyone listening. Get a piece of paper and divide it into three columns. And in one column, put what some of your inner resources, and they might be your strengths, your attitudes, what you know about yourself. On the second column, put your external resources, and they might be friends, therapists, gyms, parks. You know, I have a tree and a place in nature that I go to that really, you know. And then on the third column, what's what's missing? Is there anything missing that you'd like to build up a little bit more of? Um, it's to realize that you're never empty. You've always got these resources and you need to invest in them a little bit. You know, 
don't have to call a friend just when things are going wrong. But when you call a friend, when you connect with a friend, when you connect with a community or you go to do some yoga or you go for a walk or a run or you meditate or you read something or listen to something like this, um, all of that is making a deposit in your resilience bank. Such a great exercise to do as well. I did something not too dissimilar recently, and I'm just going to share what I came up with just so that you know, it doesn't always feel like it's hard work. I realized, especially during a lot of the Iran uprising last autumn, it was just a very difficult period for me to navigate. And I kind of realized that in order to be able to engage with it and having the kind of impact I'd like, I needed to actually make sure that I was spending some time like having fun, mm-hmm. engaged in some play. Yes. Like, you know, like I remember one of my friends was like, I can't, can't go to a party. I'm just so upset about what's going on. And I was like, that's exactly why we have to go to a party that like we have to. And so it seemed really silly, but I was just like, you know what? What's fun? What do I like doing? I just need to do fun things a little bit because for me, play was how I needed to build my resilience. So I don't want people listening to feel like it necessarily needs to be a chore. It could just be going out and having a good dance. Absolutely. (laughs) I I love you saying that, you know, play, fun is really good spiritual practice. It fills those wells. I mean, you know, the wells are, are physical, think our play does that. Cognitive play does that because you get sharper again, because you're with people intellectually, because people will be talking to you and you're thinking of your response back. Emotionally, you feel connected. And the thing about play is that you're in the present as well and you're letting go. You don't have to force yourself to do it, but bring lightness in and bring appreciation in because it can sound grueling. Mm. Self-development can sound grueling. It can sound like the, the, the work are you doing your work? <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of seems to involve sitting cross-legged with a very serious look on your face. Very, or, very, you know. very serious. And, you know, I, and I, I, I worry a little bit because some self-development seems to be very static mm. and insular and intellectual. And actually play is really important for that as well. Um, dance, you know, you and I love dancing, right? If it's moving your body is essentially important. Laughing, you know, laughing is a way to get perspective. You Mm -hmm. laugh and and suddenly things don't seem so, and I'm not going to, you know, diminish what's happening in Iran, which I know is just extraordinary. And you're very connected and involved with what's happening. Um, But it can offer you relief, perspective, and just that can help you go back in again. You know, mm-hmm. It's not the same as avoidance, which is turning up the music. I'm not listening. I don't want to deal with this. That's something very, very different. It's a way to resource yourself. Yeah, it really is. And I think there's also kind of quite a lot of resistance that people have to it, like some kind of internal shame or sometimes externally kind of shamed. But, you know, otherwise, I just have seen how much it just knocks down people's resilience, which means you just don't have the energy then to kind of carry on fighting. It, it's what it's what happens. And it's also part of the plan, right? Right. So exactly. It, totally. it's to grind yeah. people down. To, yeah. You know, what do repressive regimes, theocracies do first is they close down the, the ways that people can yeah. be together and have fun. They stop people dancing. They stop music. They, you know, they stop celebration. 
Yeah. Um, and it does become an important form of not just replenishment, but resistance as well. Like when I was in Syria before the war, you know, my goodness, people were so joyful and so full of dance and warmth and community. Of course, what's going on there now, and especially with the earthquake, you know, it is difficult. But I, I guarantee you that some of the things that will be happening, some of the community things will be about making food, will be about telling jokes and stories, will be about entertaining people and helping them to feel joyful because that is resistance, revolt, resilience, and communities know this. Yeah. Pleasure works. Pleasure works. Communities know this. Yeah. It's so essential. I, I can't remember who it was who said, if your revolution doesn't include dance, then it's not my revolution. Something like yeah. that, I paraphrase, and it's really important. Well, that feels like such a helpful note to end on. I just want to thank you so profoundly for joining oh. me. And thank you for doing this as well, because this is you finding your own path as well. So you're kind of like show and tell folks, right? <laughs> thank you. I am trying to make it as playful as possible. <laughs> Great. So hooray for play. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Rising Up. You can find the recipe for the hot yogurt soup and references to some of the resources we mentioned over at my Substack, which is risingup.substack.com. I do hope you have a go at the three columns exercise that Fiona described. I've done it and it's incredibly useful and clarifying. You can find Fiona's new book, Find Your Own Path, A Life Coach's Guide to Changing Your Life over on her website, which is fionabuckland.com. Today's show was presented by me, Yasmin Khan, and produced by Lena Presswood at Scenery Studios. If you've enjoyed this conversation and know someone who might like to hear it too, be a good friend and forward them the link. See you next time.